0: Well, as I've said, welcome this morning. We're in the midst of a series, uh, second part actually, on, on prayer. And, uh, you know, uh, we we can all acknowledge, whether you're a believer here this morning or even if you're not a believer, you have to admit that prayer... When it comes to spirituality, when it comes to a life of relationship with God, prayer is a really important and foundational component to our lives. So it's really um, um, a neat series that at this particular time, many of you who may be struggling, who may have forgotten that God loves us, that God cares for us, that God wants to be in a relationship with us, and that prayer is such a vital communication, not just communication tool, but a vital relational tool that God has given us to uh, have that connection with God. Now, um, you, you may not have, you know, I'm, I'm, I, th- I think one of the passages that, w- that we're going to look at when it comes to prayer, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible because it reveals so much, not just about the person who wrote this particular passage, but about you know, the context and, and the subject matter that we're talking about today. And here, here is something that maybe you never thought of, but prayer occupies a really unique space in our lives, if I can just say. At least authentic biblical prayer occupies a really special uh, place in our lives. And you've already got it up there, so here, here's, here's the space that prayer occupies. Prayer occupies the space between self-sufficiency And hopelessness. That's that's the space that prayer should occupy in our lives. And here's here's what I mean by all of all of that. You see, if you live your life in a very self-sufficient way, I don't need anything. I can manage all things on my own. I'm I'm good. um, You know, there isn't a necessity for you to feel like you need to pray. And then certain things come up in your life where you know it's beyond your capacity. It's 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 you know really hard, it's traumatic, it's difficult. You can't manage the situation. And, and, and a lot of times, if you're a self-sufficient person, those are the times that you pull out prayer. Even if you're not a believer, there are times, I've, I've known people that, you know, have had awful things happen in their lives, and they say, well, maybe I should pray. You know, and it's like, well, you've been self-sufficient all this time, and, and now you want to pray. And that's the thing. Prayer suddenly becomes this thing That, you know, comes out when you've run out of coins and you're trying to get something out of a vending machine. That's all that prayer happens to become when you live in this self-sufficient space. So authentic prayer, real prayer, at least prayer that God wants us to have is, is a sense of trusting him and be as sufficient and how God supplies our needs each and every day. So self-sufficiency is the one extreme. The other extreme is hopelessness, where you're going, well, what's the use anyway? Like you're in a place of despair and you're going, like things are never going to improve. It's never gonna get any better. So why pray anyway? And, and, and And if you do decide to pray in a place of hopelessness, it's like it's your last resort. Gods the only possible you know and, and it's not and last resorts aren't necessarily a bad thing but you don't pray with any conviction you don't pray with any confidence that God is going to do the impossible there's so many things so many times that the bible tells us that the God is the God who specializes in the impossible and wants us to continually you know uh, go to him when those needs especially are so dramatically high so hopelessness is this one extreme and self-sufficiency is is the other extreme and prayer lives in the space in between those two extremes where we live in this beautiful place where we're trusting god each and every day that we trust in god not only for you know the prayers that we're offering up, but an answer to those prayers. That not everything is hopeless. We're trusting in the only one that can take care of those moments, especially when we've run out of ourselves and we can no longer manage things on our own. So today I'm, I want to look really quickly at this beautiful psalm written by David. And I'm going to use the title of King David because. Here is a man, after God's own heart, who actually had everything in a physical sense that anybody would ever want in life. The prestige, the power, the resources, you know, the the command and authority that he would have had, the position, all of those kinds of things. And yet he writes this beautiful psalm of contrition and about prayer and relationship with our Heavenly Father that I think has spoken to many, many people over the ages. And we're going to do kind of a quick synopsis and summary of this beautiful psalm. But let me begin by reading the very first part of it and make some comments, and then we'll move in three stages through this beautiful psalm. Psalm 32 is the one we're looking at this morning. Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Can I get an amen right there? Okay, that's a beautiful to acknowledge whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat." Now, this psalm, you know, starts in a a bit of an unusual way because many psalms, if, if if you've read the psalms on a regular basis, it usually starts out with a bit of trouble. Lord, I'm in distress. Lord, I'm having difficulty. Lord, would you hear my prayer? Lord, you know, are you there? You know, all of those things. But this psalm starts out so differently. It starts out with the Hebrew terminology for joy. Which is like blessed, uh, happy. Um, the root of, of that particular word in Hebrew means to go straight, is to move and march forward. It's not just a a. Um, it's not just a condition that we live with, but it's a way of life. You know, joyful, happy, blessed is the person whose, you know, sin has been forgiven, and it's this beautiful. Uh, picture of the condition of a person's life when they've trusted God and confessed these things, and, and 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 you know verses three and four even even speak about the difficulty how much how much the difficulty of the physical groaning and physical weight that this guilt had in, in the life of a person. I know the ancients talk about this. If you read ancient literature, there's something about the weight of guilt, the weight of shame, the weight of the difficulties, the weight of unconfessed things, and it actually weighs on the person in a particular way that they physically feel it. They're, they're physically upset. They're physically tired. They're, they're, they physically feel weighed down. And notice that, that David here doesn't talk about the judgment of God. He talks about the discipline God if you read the wisdom literature the discipline of God is one of the key demonstrations and examples that God loves us the discipline is the way that God uses to correct us especially when we're living with a guilt that is weighing us down so much and as the as um, and as we want to make a point of all this that for for David he's realizing that confessed guilt Opens actually opens the door to, f- to forgiveness opens the door to joy opens the door to peace um, Which is which is beautiful you see um, This this psalm doesn't really talk about shame if we can we can talk there are two distinctions to make here guilt says That I've done something bad That's what guilt says shame says that I am bad Okay, that, that that's that inner thing that happens is because you become defined by the things that you have done. And that's another weight altogether. But here, you know, David is talking about the guilt, the things that he's done wrong that have been, you know, guilty before God that he's able to confess and see all the forgiveness that has happened. And guilt um, is this beautiful thing that opens the door to forgiveness. So when, when, when we... Place it out in front of the Lord that we can experience forgiveness. It's no longer a weight in our lives. It's no longer something that we're carrying. You know, Jesus says is to give your troubles to him and and take that yoke off of yourself, that heavy burden that has you carrying all the weight of the world and give it to Jesus. Jesus actually said that. At one point in, in Matthew, and did you know this is this the, the crafting of this of this psalm is absolutely beautiful because there's actually three different Hebrew words used for you know sin sin transgression iniquity uh, three different Hebrew words and there's actually three different Hebrew words used for forgiveness as we go through this psalm. And three different words for contrition, for, you know, the feeling of remorse and confession. It's a beautifully crafted in, in the Hebrew language. And, and it, you know, the extent of our guilt versus the extent of God's forgiveness versus the extent of how the confession washes us clean. So it's like a merism in the the worst that we can possibly experience receives the very best in forgiveness from God. David understood this. Um, so that's, that's what confession opens the door. But most of us hold back on confession, hold back on our guilt, because we're afraid to, to place it out in front of God. But finally, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you finally release it, and you finally give it over. You say, God, I'm sorry, I've been carrying this around. And, and what's striking about that is God knows what you're carrying. He's just waiting for you to release it. He's not unaware of it. He knows full well what you're carrying. But it opens the door to forgiveness, joy, and a peace that passes all understanding because we surrendered it, surrendered it up to God. Here's the next part of the passage. And here's where the turning point comes. I love this. Uh, verse 5 says, finally, finally. <laughs> and, and you know, Finally in Hebrew means finally. The word in Hebrew means finally, okay? That's exactly what it means. I confessed all my sins to you. It, it means like I've carried this for so long. It was something that I just thought I could manage on myself. I thought I had the self-sufficiency to, to take care of it. But the weight got heavier, the weight got heavier, the weight got heavier. And then finally, I confessed all my sins to you. And stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Notice how David, you know, talks about that so quickly in succession. I confessed. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory." Notice, notice the turning point in, in, in the way that David expresses himself. It's such a weight that he's burdened by the entire uh, guilt that he's carrying and it's all of a sudden he's light again he's light on his feet there's nothing that's weighing him down that his relationship between himself and god is fully open fully clear what, whatever whatever you know petitions were against him are totally you know taken away and he's a brand new brand new person this wonderful Beautiful thing. You know, the apostle, one of the apostles, John, in, in 1 John, who had walked with Jesus for a number of years, he writes in 1 John 1 9 that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. You know, what I love about that particular verse, is it, it tells you that there's no doubt. Sometimes, you know, we, we wanna confess to somebody, okay? We've done something wrong to somebody else. And we may be afraid to approach them. What if they don't forgive me? What if they say, you know, you deserve it? I don't wanna hear your apologies. What if, you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff, or you hurt me too bad, or I'm gonna make you pay for it. There's all these conditions that on a human level, Sometimes when we confess or when we want to, you know, ask for forgiveness, there's doubt in the back of our mind about whether it's going to be received or received well. What is beautiful in the biblical picture is that when we confess to the Lord, when we confess to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And John says to cleanse us from all wickedness, to cleanse us of all... That the record is gone. That we don't walk in front of God and say, "God, I'm so sorry. I've you know, you know, forgive me." That God doesn't say, "Hmm, I don't know, you know, you're about an hour late. I'd given you a time limit on this." We don't get that. That's the beautiful thing about confessing, and that's what God is waiting. That's what God is waiting for. And here's the point I want to make from this particular session that. That confession has a way that moves me out of the shadows and into the light. That we're not, you know, we're not living in the shadows. We're not living in the darkness anymore. We're not having this part of ourselves that is hidden away. This part of ourselves that's weighing us down. You know, on the surface we can be, oh, I'm all okay. And on the surface everything, you know, is working out all right. But in the back of this you know, this compartment of our lives, this closet of our lives, there's this weight and this hidden thing that I'm glad nobody else knows about this. And yet God knows about it, but we're holding it back in a way. And it's a weight in our own lives. When God is saying to us, you know, just give it to me, just release it. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you of all that wickedness. If you trust me in the, in the, in, in the, with this, that I will transform you, I will make you into something brand new. Okay? And this is the next part of the psalm that I want to read really, really quickly to you is, is this, this one thing. Is The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life Notice that the, the next session is not just about the cleansing, but now when you've trusted the Lord, when you've confessed to Him and you've given it all to Him, that your life now is, is a directed path with God in the lead and taking you know, that, that uh, direction in your life than when you confessed. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Do you know, by the way, how many times unfailing love is communicated in the Old Testament? And do you realize that many, many times in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, unfailing love is connected to the person of Jesus Christ? unfailing love is a characteristic of God that there are many relationships on 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 a horizontal level in our lives that love becomes conditional that love is failed or love love isn't the same over time you know we have all these human inconsistencies when it comes to love but when it comes to God when it comes to our relationship with God it is unfailing the God is there that God loves us unconditionally, that love you know, expressed by God is for our betterment, and it makes us whole, and it heals us, and it makes us one with Him. It's beautiful. So rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all you, whose hearts are pure. You know, David moves from this, this you know, recognizing that he, he held all this guilt, um, recognized the, you know, the joy that happened and the forgiveness and the peace and the beautiful um, transition in his life when he surrendered those things to God, and recognized that God right away cleansed him and right away forgave him and right away placed him in a right standing with with God himself. And not only that, but it propelled David from that moment onward to a wholesome life, a better life, a life where God was, was leading him and he was trusting the Lord and it was this beautiful picture of a transition that happens where this confession, had it not happened, had he kept it to himself, it would have been this disjointed you know, um, half, half worked out, half baked relationship with God, and David did away with all of that. He became, you know, um, uh, totally open, cleared all the garbage out of his life, and committed it to the Lord. And you know, when we do that, it does something to our lives. I'm, I'm firmly convinced what happens in this particular. You know, um, let, let me just back up again. Remember, only two Psalms over. There's this beautiful passage that I, I really like in Psalm 30, 34. It says, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who trust in him. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it out. Enjoy the forgiveness. Enjoy the benefits of, of your conscience Being washed clean and and the guilt that you carry around is is totally gone because it's been surrendered to the Lord and confessed to the Lord now this is this doesn't talk really about confession on a human level this is talking about first and foremost confessing to God I think you know confessing to God is the first step and the first natural step before you get confession to others, and and there, that's a whole other topic, and has a whole other range of dynamics. Um, but this is about confessing to God the things that are weighing us down, the things that are, we are guilty of in front of us. And and here's here's you know the way that the psalm moves. I think the the last point that is really really important: a repentant heart leads to redemptive actions. You see, when I've been cleansed of all my guilt, and I've been you know I've repented before God it leads to redemptive actions it leads me to living a life where I the experience of forgiveness that I have been given is experience of forgiveness that I give to other people that I live this life of of wanting to redeem you know everything in my life for the better because I've been shown the grace of God I've been shown forgiveness I've been shown peace and joy And that is something that I don't hide to myself. I don't say, you know, this is for me and for me alone. That if you're a Christian here this morning, if you've experienced the incredible joy of confessed sin and the incredible forgiveness that God has placed on you, then that becomes your life mission to become people, you know, redeemed people and be an agent of reconciliation. That we, you know, that forgiveness that we've been given is forgiveness that we need to communicate to others. I, you know, I often wondered how many people reject God who never see this particular picture of God. And I think that's so, so sad. I think, I think a passage that sort of ties in with this, I'm going to take us to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, or 7 to 11, I believe is what it is, or 17 and onward. Um, look at this passage, and I, and I think it ties in very much with this particular psalm. This means that anyone, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's the, you know, the reconciliation. That's the repentance. That's the being forgiven. That's the peace. That's the joy. All of those things that get attached when our guilt is surrender to God. And we no longer carry that any longer. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to Him. Notice that comment, right? This is where I get the, the you know, a repentant heart leads to redemptive actions. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. Isn't that that's beautiful? That that, that message that we give to people about what we have been forgiven, you know, uh, what what has transpired in our lives. Because of the faith that we have placed and surrendered everything to God. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, Come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now I I want to I want to close this message for um, uh, something that's that's happened in in our country in the last couple of weeks. Um, many many of you have seen the news about. 215 um, children that were found at a residential school in a mass grave. I, I don't know about you, but I, I felt like my heart was absolutely ripped out of my chest when I first read that. In fact, I remember seeing the, the heading of the article and, and you know going back to it, and, and did I read that right? And then reading the article, and, and being in many ways traumatized by what I had just read. I don't know. But children, in the name of the church, in the name of politics, in the name of all those things, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I, I, I thought of this passage right away. That how, how is that possibly being ambassadors of reconciliation? Ambassadors of, of the hope that the church is supposed to be for the world. And yet children were made victims. For the sake of what? Um, I just want to, I, I, I feel that it's necessary in whatever way possible to just say, we are so sorry for, for what it's worth. And I know it's small at this point in time, but please forgive us. Incredible injustice and incredible sadness and tragedy and trauma that children would be, would not be safe in the hands of anything that was related to the church. It just broke my heart and it just went back to Sometimes, as a church, sometimes as people of faith, we miss what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation, what it means to be a representative of the forgiveness that has been given us. And, you know, the heart of this psalm in, in, you know, David writing has given us the language of what it means to be fully repentant and recognizing our own sinfulness, our own guilt our own ability to actually do horrible things when we think we can be self-sufficient and when we think we can do it all and when we think we can be self-righteous and when we think we've, you know, we have the right to do whatever and to see others in a way that minimizes them and looks less on them. I'm just very, very sorry. And I, and I pray and I pray that our government that the world that we live in, that the church itself is going to do the right thing from here on in? Can we just be a church that cares for others in a way that we are ambassadors of reconciliation? You know, Darlene gave me uh, an article this week. I, you know, we've been talking a lot about this at home. It just really breaks my heart. Anything, anything to do with children, you know, if you want to you stab me in the heart really quick, anything that, to do with children, that's the fastest way um, to get to my heart. Um, but, but Darlene showed me an article out of Denmark this week, and it's called, um, oh, it's a, it's a lending library. But you don't go to borrow a book. This is a book library. You know, it's a li- library that you go to. But instead of borrowing a book from this library, you borrow a human being for 30 minutes. It's called, it's called the, um, the Human Project. I think, I think is what it is. Yeah, it's called the human library. That's what it's called. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. You see, um, we can label people or we can think, you know, um, whatever. We can put them in all these categories. But this is now being adopted in, I think, 50 different countries right now, this human library. So you go and you borrow a person for 30 minutes. And what you do is you sit down and you listen to their story and you get to know them as a human being. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I think we need more dialogue, especially with people we don't agree with, or people that we see as different, or as people that we, we don't understand, all of those kinds of things. And this, this project in Denmark, I guess, is, is you know becoming really radical and is being adopted, as I said, by 50 different countries. But I thought, wow, what a wonderful idea. Why didn't the church think of that? Because it gets us beyond labels, beyond you know, categories, and exposes us to humans, to other people. People who are made in the image of God. People who God loves dearly. And it exposes us to people in a way that sees them the way God sees them. Listen, we said at the beginning of this message that prayer lives in this beautiful space, a beautiful space between self-sufficiency and hopelessness. And when we see the the authenticity of prayer, when we realize that we are sufficient only in Christ... And we are never hopeless because of Christ. That prayer lives in this beautiful space where we can release our guilt to God. In this beautiful space where we know that when we do so, God makes us much more than we can ever hope and imagine that we would ever, ever, ever be. I pray you've been blessed by this message. You know, it's time for our communion. Um, I've, I've, I've hopefully I've left a lo- enough time for Brent to come up. We've, we have... a. Uh, uh, Brent Paul, our elder, emeritus, if I can, (laughs) who is going to lead us in communion. Um, We're really blessed to have Brent here. Brent, why don't you come? And I hope I didn't darken the mood for you too much um, as you come to do communion.